Who was Joel Chandler Harris? Who was Uncle Remus? And what do they have to do with a movie by Walt Disney? We'll discuss that in this episode and the next on Footnoting History. Hello, and welcome to Footnoting History. This is your host, Elizabeth. First, I'd like to start with a reminder that all of our episodes are available on YouTube and fully accessible with transcriptions checked by members of our team. Additionally, to help keep our show ad-free, consider supporting us through our Patreon or our merch shop. Links for YouTube, Patreon, and TeePublic can be found on our website at www.footnotinghistory.com. Now, let's turn to the star of our episode, Joel Chandler Harris author of the once popular, and now taboo, Uncle Remus stories. The early days of Joel Chandler Harris's life are up for debate. Literally, including even his earliest day, his birthday. In a short autobiographical sketch titled An Accidental Author, and published in 1886, Harris gave details about growing up. According to Harris, he was born in 1848 in Eatonton, Georgia, to Mary Ann Harris, an Irish immigrant. His father had left before Harris was born, and he was named for the doctor that delivered him and an uncle. Harris and his mother were given housing by a kindly doctor, and it was in this home that his mother read to him from the Vicar of Wakefield, and this act, as Harris explained, led to his love of reading. Eventually, he became a printer's assistant, then writer himself, and so on. Or, at least, this is what the Wikipedia version of Harris's life would have you believe— W.J. Rorabaugh, however, pointed out in 1984 that most of Harris's account seems to be a joke. For instance, the oft-repeated claim that Harris became interested in literature as his mother, who was uneducated and poor, read him The Vicar of Wakefield, a Victorian-era classic. This book is about the seduction of a young woman, and it seems less like a bedtime story for a young child and more like an allusion to Harris's home life where he was the illegitimate son of a young woman and had no father in sight. Or town. Even the title, An Accidental Author? Rorabaugh claims is a commentary on his less than socially acceptable parentage. How then are we to know about Harris if we can't even trust his own accounts? Well, as always, government and other documents help, but only so much. Census records, records of deferments to serve in the Confederate Army, other information all leave conflicting evidence. Rorabaugh believes that Harris was probably born closer to 1845 and deliberately started making himself younger, A, to appear more precocious and talented in his early publications, but also, B, to defend himself against the fact that he didn't fight in the Civil War on the Confederate side. In that way, then, I can tell you that Harris was most likely born between 1845 to 1848, probably in Paulden County, Georgia, and maybe in the town of Edenton, Georgia. But maybe not. Okay, It is true, however, that a kindly doctor took care of Joel and his mother Mary. This doctor gave them a cottage in which they could live. The Harrises supported themselves through Mary's sewing abilities and also by helping neighbors in their gardens. Dr. Reed, the kindly doctor, even paid for Joel to attend school, although at school he wasn't exactly known for his grades, but rather for his misbehavior and, here's a personal moment, his red hair. Joel was often absent, and when he was in attendance, he would play practical jokes on others. As a teenager, somewhere between 14 and 17, and I won't, can't, won't or can't really say any more than that given the uncertainty of his birth year, he quit school to work. 
It was the middle of the Civil War, and as noted above, this is where it would have behooved Joel to pretend to be younger than he was, as not fighting for the Confederacy was definitely seen as a negative. There's even a speech given by Jefferson Davis, president of the Confederacy, in 1864, where he specifically called out men who did not fight. Per Davis, quote, To the young ladies, I would say that when choosing between an empty sleeve and the man who remained at home and grown rich, always take the empty sleeve. Let the old men remain at home and make bread. But should they know of any young man keeping away from the service who cannot be made to go any other way, let them write to the executive, end quote. It's in moments like these, however, that we also start to wonder more about Joel's interior life and the question of slavery. His dedication, or potential lack thereof, to the lost cause, that is, the narrative that the Civil War was an honorable affair fought by the South against the overmighty North, is an interesting one, but without a clear answer. And this question will rise continually in Joel's life, which is unsurprising, at least given when and where he lived. A white man who didn't fully support slavery and the inferiority of black Americans was suspect in the South. In fact, there was even a name for whites who were sympathetic to the Union, scalawags, and they were not well treated. But does that mean that Joel was a scalawag? We just don't know. However, to not fight for the Confederacy, we can tell that Joel needed a good reason, and that reason was printing. Joel was hired by Joseph Addison Turner to live on the Turnwald Plantation just outside Eatonton, Georgia, as a printing assistant, which at the time was known as a printer's devil, for the paper The Countryman. Ben Franklin, Walt Whitman, Mark Twain, all of them had served some time as printer's devils. The Countryman was one of the largest newspapers in the South during the Civil War, and if Harris was not fighting for the Confederacy, he was helping to publish the news for it. Turner was very pro-South. Looking for content, Turner was also more than happy to allow Joel to publish his poems, his reviews, and his writing. Harris's experience on the Turnwald Plantation would shape his life in two distinctive ways. First, Harris was allowed to read Turner's collections of classic literature. Perhaps this time had more of an impact than the stories about his mother's alleged inappropriate bedtime tales. Secondly, Harris spent much of his time in the quarters of the plantation's enslaved peoples. Here he heard stories from people that would one day fill his works on Uncle Remus. In his 1892 book, On the Plantation, which was written when he was closer to 50, Harris gave a semi-autobiographical account of his time on the Turnwald Plantation during the Civil War. Harris has been accused of romanticizing both his characterizations of life for the enslaved as well as the impact of Sherman's march to the sea on the people of Edenton. In his work, the enslaved people on the Turnwald Plantation are happy, and in fact when the war ends, many of them choose to stay with their master, Joseph Turner. The Union soldiers who march past the plantation, though, are also described as happy and kind. In reality, Sherman's march and the impact on the Civil War ultimately left Joseph Turner financially ruined. He sold the plantation and died in town a few years later from chronic health problems. Given that when he was writing on the plantation, Harris was co-editor of the Atlantic Constitution, a newspaper run by Henry Grady, champion of the New South, it is unsurprising that Harris would have painted the Union soldiers as kindly, even though most of the readers probably wouldn't have agreed. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. While on the plantation, Harris spent time with enslaved people such as Uncle George Terrell, Old Harbert, and Aunt Chrissy. Unfortunately, as in most cases, we don't know much about these figures beyond what Harris informs us. Harris, however, does approach the negatives of slavery in his memoir On the Plantation. 
Even though he presents the plantation he lived on as idyllic, Harris understood that not all enslaved people live this way. An escaped enslaved person from another plantation tells Joe Maxwell, the protagonist, the stand-in for Harris and on the plantation, that his overseer does not treat him right. And while he doesn't go into full detail, that, quote, the very tone of his voice was more convincing than any argument could have been, end quote. Later, Joe asks Mink, the escaped enslaved person who he's been talking to, why he's still living in the woods and hasn't returned to his master's. And Mink answers that it's because the overseer is waiting for him with a club. At no point in the story, however, does Joe consider raising the alarm and letting the other white people of the community know that there's an escaped enslaved person living nearby. And, according to Harris, the omniscient narrator, the decision to stay quiet about Mink endeared the young boy to the enslaved people on the plantation where he lived. Even in this story, though, Harris protects the slave owners. It is the overseer, not the slave owner, who is the problem. And a young boy who fully intends to inherit his father's enslaved people even says that he won't let his overseer beat his enslaved people. Harris's description of benevolent slave owners fits that lost cause narrative that the South was creating when he wrote his work. But again, Joe also reveals himself to be a traitor to the white cause. He joins a group who are hunting for mink, and even though Joe's describes the action of the hunting dogs who are tracking the escaped enslaved person as beautiful... Joe also realizes that Mink has escaped in a boat, but does nothing to alert the hunters who are a few minutes behind him. Harris, therefore, is treading carefully. He seemingly had no problem with slavery as long as the enslaved are, in his mind, treated well. But he also supported enslaved people running away when they were mistreated. Again, in his opinion. Later, when discussing the hunt with Harbert, an enslaved person on the plantation on which Joe lived, Harbert tells Joe that he's aware that the boy let Mink escape. When Joe asks how he could know, Harbert tells him that the birds carried the story. We begin to see how Harbert can become Uncle Remus. Even though in good world-building fashion, Harbert states that he heard at least one story from an old man Remus. What then was life like for enslaved people on the Turnwall Plantation? Well, first, let's remember that this is from Harris's recollection, and he definitely has a motivation in presenting the Turnwald Plantation as the greatest place to live. With that caveat, and it's a big one. First, we learn about Harbert's living quarters, and the white children's fondness for Harbert, and another storytelling enslaved person, Aunt Chrissy. Quote, Harbert's house had two rooms and two fireplaces. One of the rooms was set apart for him and his wife, while the other was used as a weaving room. In one, Harbert used to sit at night and amuse the children with his stories. In the other, Aunt Chrissy used to weave all day and sing, keeping time with the flying shuttle and the dancing sleighs. The children might tire of their toys, their ponies, and everything else, but they could always find something to interest them in Harbert's house. There were a few nights, especially during the winter, that did not find them seated by the Negro's white hearthstone. On special occasion, they could hardly wait to finish supper before going out to see him. Sometimes they found Aunt Chrissy there, and as she was fat and good-humored, not to say jolly, she was always a welcome guest so far as the children were concerned. As for Harbert, it was all one to him whether Aunt Chrissy was present or not. To use his own sententious phrase, she was welcome to come or she was welcome to stay away. Frequently, Joe Maxwell would go and sit there with them, 
especially when he was feeling lonely and homesick, end quote. It is in these rooms, then, that we can assume that most of Harris's stories that he ascribed to Uncle Remus came from. We learn a little bit more about the world that Harris might have seen during the Civil War in On the Plantation when he meets with white soldiers who have deserted the Confederate Army and are actually being aided by Mink, the escaped enslaved person. The soldiers explain that when they joined the army, they were told that their wives and children would be cared for, but instead, their families are starving, and they've been left. Quote, Joe had heard it hinted and rumored that in some cases, especially where they lived remote from the relief committees, the families of the soldiers were not so well provided for that they had a right to expect. He had even set up some editorials in The Countryman which hinted that there was suffering among the soldiers' wives and children. But he never dreamed that it was serious enough to create discontent among the soldiers. End quote. Harris does not tell us why the soldiers had joined the Confederacy, but we know why they left. This detail, much like the inclusion of the brutal overseer, shows cracks in the lost cause narrative. Again, though, Harris does not lay the fault on leadership, but an underling. The deserters are being mistreated by a bad captain in the Confederate Army. What of the starving women and children, though? Well, we never actually really get a satisfactory answer to whose fault that is. But don't worry, some kindly visitors here, and they go and check on the family. On the Plantation closes with the arrival of the Union soldiers, or, as Joe called them, the Federal Army. Even though the soldiers took the horses and food, and were actually guided to them, as even Harris explains, by the newly freed people, those soldiers are full of good humor. Joe finds nothing to complain about with their behavior, except for the loss of his favorite horse. But we do also see what the end of slavery looked like to young Joe, and most likely young Harris. The younger enslaved people who worked in the fields left to follow the federal army. Joe surmised that those who had left had not been on, quote, familiar terms with the owners. The older newly freed people, including Harbert, are still there tending the plantation. Finally, Joe meets an old woman who is crying beside the body of her dead husband. Even though Joe describes the scene as pitiable, the former slave and widow did not, as she loudly proclaims, quote, Bless God, he died free, end quote. The story has a largely happy ending. Mink returns, becomes a tenant on the plantation, and eventually earns enough to have his own small farm. In that way, then, life goes on. But if you, or me, probably definitely me, were hoping to mine on the plantation for Harris's thoughts on slavery and the Civil War, it is hard to do, especially because when he wrote the book, he was working for the creator of the New South, Henry Grady. And there I go again, getting ahead of myself. What we do learn from this work is how enslaved people use storytelling to pass on history and lessons to the younger generation, both black and white. Now, following the end of the Civil War, Harris continued to work at newspapers, such as the illustrious Macon Telegraph, the Monroe Advertiser, and the Savannah Morning News. Come on, y'all know you've heard about them. Anyway, the young writer made a name for himself with his humorous sketches, and soon they were being published across the country. It was during this time that he also met and fell in love with Esther LaRose. They married in Savannah in 1873, and quickly the couple had two children. In 1876, they fled Savannah for Atlanta to escape a yellow fever epidemic. At this point, Harris landed a position as an associate editor at the Atlanta Constitution. And if you are familiar at all with the Atlanta Journal-Constitutional today, 
that becomes the inheritor. It becomes a mix of the Atlanta Constitution and the Atlanta Journal. Those who have listened to my episodes on cemeteries in the mid-20th century are familiar with that combo. So he lands a position as associate editor at the Atlanta Constitution. And after all, I mean, they're already actually publishing his sketches, so why not hire him? From political treatments, Harris shifted to writing his own material based on the stories he had learned from the enslaved people at the Turnwald Plantation. The main character or storyteller became Uncle Remus, based on that Uncle George Terrell mentioned above, as well as Old Harbert. And over the next 16 years, he published three works of Uncle Remus stories. In addition, he published several novels, novellas, and short stories not necessarily about Uncle Remus, but assuredly grounded in the Georgia he knew. While at the Atlanta Constitution, Harris worked under Henry Grady. Above, I mentioned Grady and the New South. Well, okay, finally time to explain it. The New South was a campaign to industrialize and modernize the southern United States after the Civil War, but most definitely while continuing to pay homage to the Lost Cause narrative, that myth again that the Civil War was a fought to defend the South from Northern aggression and certainly not to defend slavery. Henry Grady was one of the most influential editors in this realm of the New South, and Harris was a close friend and colleague. The New South journalist decried Reconstruction, but not actually the North. If we place Harris's works, including his Uncle Remus stories and his memoir, in this context of promoting the New South by neither condemning slave owners nor the Union soldiers who came through at the end of the Civil War, we can actually better understand the purpose behind them. Harris wanted to entertain. He appreciated the stories that he had learned from Old George and Harbert, but he also wanted the South to come back. He believed in Grady's vision and he shared his optimism. When Grady died young in 1889, Harris eulogized his friends in the highest terms. What he didn't include was Grady's high level of white supremacy that he incorporated into the New South and the idea that the New South was definitely supposed to be of the Anglo-Saxons not of this diverse racial reality. The decade following Grady's death was a hard one for Harris. He and his wife, Essie, had a total of nine children, but only six survived. Ill health began to affect him, some believe due to alcoholism. In 1900, Harris retired from the Atlanta Constitution and turned to writing stories and books full-time. Towards the end of Harris's life, he was invited to the White House by Teddy Roosevelt and praised for all his Uncle Remus stories had given to not just Georgia or the South, but the United States. So when he died, approximately at age 60, due to cirrhosis of the liver and nephritis, his eulogizers also focused on how while Harris was dead, Uncle Remus would live on. So beloved was Harris that the Wren's Nest, the home he had lived in for nearly 30 years and in which he had written over 20 books, was turned into a museum by Andrew Carnegie. And then, 31 years later, Walt Disney bought the rights to Harris's Uncle Remus stories. But we're going to cover that story in part two. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Footnoting History. As always, please check out our further reading at www.footnotinghistory.com. Consider subscribing to our YouTube channel and, if possible, please become one of our Patreon supporters. And remember, the best stories are always in the footnotes. <laughs>